To quote our brother, Vody Bauckham, who we just prayed for, he had a saying that he introduced in a, in a talk some years ago now about why he believes the Bible is true. And it's a helpful statement. I've repeated it various times, but to help you internalize it, memorize it, I have it uh, here to be shown on the screen this morning. This is a helpful statement, actually a, what he calls expository apologetics uh, from Second Peter chapter 1, why we, tr- why we believe the Bible is true. He says, I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, reporting supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies, and the writers claim their writings are divine and not of human origin. So we have those different aspects of the scripture, that it is, it's a reliable collection. It is historical stuff. It's not made up. It's not a book of, of maxims. Now we have Proverbs, of course, but it is a book that celebrates uh, the re- reality of history and the reality of God working, as one of my professors likes to say, when he perpendicularizes himself into human life. I mean, anytime he's in good grief. Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. God created these wonderful things. Well, that is what we celebrate, and we recognize that he is the one who is over all things. He is the one who is able to um, insert himself, as I said, into our lives. I mean, the resurrection, if there's anything that is supernatural, it's the resurrection of Christ and his life for us. I want to focus on this idea of um, the eyewitness testimony of of scripture from the beginning then, but focusing specifically around the burial and resurrection of the Lord and how we can rest assured that it was written by eyewitnesses, but it was written by eyewitnesses in the time of other eyewitnesses. So they could corroborate the truth. They could say, well, that didn't happen that way. I remember a little bit differently. And you know what? We not, we have not only two eyewitness testimony, uh, two evidences of testimony uh, in the scripture, We not even three, we have four in terms of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you ever wonder, why do we have four Gospels? Well, it's because of the importance of what they're talking about. We need other witnesses to confirm this truth. Now, three of those were followers of Jesus and, dis- and disciples. I mean, one of the uh, some of the 12 disciples, Matthew, and, and actually Mark, John Mark, was a follower. He was a helper of Peter, who was an a, uh, apostle, obviously. And Luke was very much associated with Paul. So we have apostolic testimony and eyewitness testimony. In fact, you might regard Mark's gospel as really Peter's gospel because of the association that Mark had with Peter and how those came to be and which one was first. That's for another conversation. But four different eyewitness testimony uh, coming together. And of course, Luke, he wasn't there. He didn't see it. He was saved or or came to know faith, came to know Christ afterwards. And yet he, what does it say at the beginning of, of Luke 1? He confirmed this. He he talked to people. He talked probably to Mary. How did he get all that wonderful narrative from uh, Luke chapter 2 and and uh, the, the intricacies of the nativity uh, events? Well, talking with eyewitnesses, talking with Mary Magdalene perhaps, uh, talking with other folks who maybe he went and talked with the, the uh, centurion who uh, Jesus raised up the, the son or the servant that was ill. Wow, I mean, all sorts of people. They were there. And it wasn't like Jesus was doing things in a, in a quiet back room. He was on front and center. whole nation and uh, other nations came to hear him and, and listen to him. Well, I would like to, us to focus, if you're going to, if you have your scripture, I'm not going to have it on the screen this morning, so you'll want to focus along or follow along in your, in your scripture. But we're going to look at Matthew uh, at the very end of chapter 27 and then in uh, chapter 28. 
and notice several different ways that Matthew constructs his narrative, not because he's trying to convince us of something that's not true. He's just saying this is how it happened, and this is what happened, this is who saw it, this is what uh, we can testify concerning. This is eyewitness testimony, and he is recording, as I mentioned from Vody Bauckham, this is reporting supernatural events in fulfillment of specific prophecies. And we even see in the course of this the angelic testimony or supernatural testimony that is offered to the uh, people at the tomb, the empty tomb, of course. So Matthew 27, beginning at verse 57, we're going to pick it up after Jesus had died and all the wonderful theological realities of, of why he died and what was accomplished in that. But just the the historical reality of his death. Verse 57 says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had also himself become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a linen, a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary, sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore order for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have, got, you have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a, a seal on the stone. We'll read further in, in chapter 28. But right at the beginning, we see eyewitness testimony. Of course, we see Joseph of Arimathea coming to us. We don't know much about him other than he was rich. He was probably a member of the Sanhedrin, part of the council. He was uh, a secret follower. He, if you patch the different testimony about him in all the Gospels, you get this picture. He was a secret follower of Jesus for fear of the Jews. He didn't want to come out outright and say he was a follower, but he was uh, devoted to him. And he had the, the gumption, he had the desire to honor the Lord uh, in his death by taking his body and bearing it, an honorable burial. Now, those who were crucified on the cross, uh, and there weren't just a few of them, there were many in Roman history, that were crucified, typically their bodies were left on the cross for days because crucifixion usually lasted or took days until death uh, took them. And then their bodies were not treated honorably. I mean, these were criminals. These were folks that had criminals according to the state anyway. And anyway, we won't go into all that, but they, their bodies were then cast either into a pit or just left out for the wild animals to eat. I mean, they, they were treated very dishonorably. Joseph said, I'm not going to let that happen to my Lord. And he goes to Pilate. Now, Pilate was an historical figure. Lest we think, oh, there's this guy and his name, Pilate. And what kind of a name is that? Even Pontius Pilate. That's rather pompous, isn't it? Well, Pontius Pilate was a fellow who was part of history. He was the governor of Judea in that first century time period under the reign of Tiberius. And he is mentioned in history. Here we have this... Uh, this uh, dedica dedicatory plaque is a stone plaque that was found in Caesarea, Caesarea uh, on the on the sea, not the other one up in north. This is it mentions you if you read Latin, you can pick out his name. Uh, Pilate Pilatus is mentioned there. It was a dedicatory stone that that uh, Pilate uh, established as he built a building there in in Caesarea and dedicated it to Tiberius. 
There's a whole lot of intrigue going on why that was historical developments and why Pilate was so much, I mean, Pilate was a very proud, arrogant, anti-Semitic to a certain degree guy, and Tiberius was on the lookout for those. And I, I, I'm trying not to get into that whole history because it will take some time to develop, but he was trying to, uh, if you don't mind, um, honor Tiberius so he wouldn't be killed. Uh, Pilate would not be killed. Anyway, Pilate is a real person in history, and he is the one who bears eyewitness testimony to the fact that Jesus, I mean, Pilate had a very personal conversation with Jesus. Not, we didn't read it, but, uh, you know, what is truth kind of a, a statement, and I don't you know I have authority to deliver you, and, and all that wonderful. Pilate was there. He saw Jesus, and he is the one. We looked at this in our Luke's uh, gospel study. He was the one who declared Jesus innocent time and time and time again. Jesus, I find no fault in this man. And I want to, you know, I'll punish him for to placate your angry mob stuff, but I'm going to release him. And they said, no, and all this. And he ended up crucifying him. Pilate was there. Pilate is an historical figure. He saw this. And even his wife uh, had, uh, you know, dreams that troubled her and said, have nothing to do with this righteous man. For I've been troubled with dreams about him. Other uh, eyewitness testimony that is uh, gathered along, the women who were there at the cross uh, as Jesus was taken down from the tomb, or down from the cross, excuse me, Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus had cast several demons, and the other Mary, which is kind of a, who's this other Mary? Well, it's Jesus' mother. You remember Jesus talked to John? He said, uh, he said to Mary, woman, behold your son, and son, here's your mother, take care of her, because I'm going away, Jesus, as the elder son, and probably with his, his brothers still unbelieving at the time, said, John, you take care of my mother. So Mary is that other other uh, lady. Other other gospels say the mother of uh, Joseph and James and uh, Joses. It's called Joseph, and uh, this is Mary that is there as well, and she is there giving eyewitness testimony. This uh, mosaic, beautiful uh, artistry is there inside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in in Jerusalem. It is uh, decorating the place. It's telling the story. If you read it from right to left. It tells a story. You can see the cross and the body of Jesus being taken down, but you see the women that are there. Joseph of Arimathea is there. This other guy, Nicodemus, is there. They were in association. Nicodemus, Joseph supplied the tomb for Jesus to be buried in. Nicodemus supplied the linen cloths and the spices and the oils to anoint his body, and they were working together. The center of that image shows Jesus' body laid out on what is called, and I'll show you a picture of it, uh, remembered, celebrated, probably not the original authentic thing, but uh, celebrated as the place where they anointed his body, prepared it for burial, and then, of course, on the far side, where as they brought that body and placed it into the tomb. This was a new tomb. This was not to be confused as to, okay, which which body is Jesus? And, oh, it's, it's not there anymore. And I thought, well, that's Uncle, Uncle so-and-so, or that's Grandpa what? No, there's nobody else ever buried in this. There's no question about who was placed in that. It's Jesus. And now it's empty. Where does, where'd he go? Jesus was there. We saw we, Mary and the other Mary saw him. Joseph and Nicodemus saw him. They were eyewitnesses of that reality. We just read about the chief priests and the, the Pharisees who saw and interacted with Jesus on so many occasions, of course, never in a, in a penitential way, always trying to find fault with him, always testing him to try to, you know, bring the anger of Caesar down upon him. You know, should we pay taxes to Caesar or shall we not? And all these kind of nonsense questions. They knew Jesus and they knew exactly. We, we, they, if the, anybody, kind of like Satan, if anybody knows God's word better than, than Christians, it's the opponents of God. It's Satan and his followers. 
we know that that deceiver, they wouldn't even say his name, that deceiver said in three days I'll rise again. So let's go right after that. Let's destroy this lie. Let's remove any possibility that his disciples, because obviously he's not going to come again. That's foolishness. But his disciples may come and try to deceive people. So let's try to deceive people. In fact, we'll read in chapter 28 how they did. They spread a lie, and it's, it's true to this day, at least the time of Matthew when he wrote it, that Jesus' disciples came by night and, and took Jesus' body away while the Roman guards were sleeping, which introduces another set of eyewitness eyes, right? The Roman guards who, who Pilate said, okay, you have a guard, go and make it as secure as you know how. Well, they didn't know how to do it, how to make it secure from God's own action and God's own uh, heavenly angels. They couldn't do it. They they could not, but they did roll or, or put a seal, put, you know, on the, on the stone. They set a guard in front of it. And yet those Roman guards gave testimony. Some of them probably did. Some of them broke after some time. Or maybe, how do we find out about this this hidden narrative of the chief priests meeting and paying off these Roman soldiers? And if it comes to Pilate's ears, we'll satisfy him. Don't worry about it. But don't tell the truth of what happened. Angels, empty tomb, rolling the stone away. Amazing. This is an image of that uh, anointing, uh, place of anointing there inside the the uh, church of the holy sepulcher. Sepulcher is Latin word for tomb. So it's a holy tomb. And it is uh, very much honored and celebrated as that place where Jesus was, his body lay after the, after the cross. It says that Pilate uh, gave the body of Jesus to the hands of Joseph. Joseph took the body. I think another gospel writer says that in that proximity, in the place where Jesus was crucified, there happened to be a tomb in which no one had laid. And so Joseph of Arimathea took that body and buried it there. What is likely is that, in fact, I had it here. This picture shows the a model of Jerusalem. By the way, I didn't mention a lot of these images are from Bible Places. Bible Places uh, has a website called BiblePlaces.com, and they are just tremendous. And I'm sorry that these are automatically advancing. I think it thinks that I'm supposed to talk faster than I'm I'm actually going. But in, you can see, hopefully, circled kind of in the in the left center of this image, uh, that's where I believe Jesus was crucified and buried and rose again. It is outside the city walls. It is in a very public place, uh, a thoroughfare, a, a place where two roads came together. It is the place where that church of the Holy Tomb, the Holy Sepulcher, is located. And you can see this is a kind of a floor plan and even the top topographical. I mean, you love maps. You love how these things work together. You can see the topography of it. You can even see somehow how those how that quarry would have worked because it's limestone. They quarried that, they, they harvested that rock to use in building material. And so uh, there was a place where, hey, it's, it's public. This is where we're going to crucify these people. You can see circled kind of on the right of center is the tomb of Jesus. Golgotha is on the left of center. And that is this hill. It's called a hill. It's called Skull Hill. Um, it's called Golgotha for whatever reason. And that is where Jesus was crucified alongside those other two or those two criminals. Jesus was not a criminal uh, in terms of being uh, wicked, but he was associated with them in his death. Very close by. In fact, between that, if you drew a straight line between Golgotha and the, the tomb, is that place, that anointing stone. All this to say is we not only have eyewitness testimony, we have geographic reality that confirms, corroborates the testimony of Scripture, that in that place there was a tomb. And this tomb has been celebrated since the time of Jesus. Uh, during the 
uh, Roman kind of occupation and, and having destroyed the of the temple and, and really remaking Jerusalem, renaming it even uh, Ilea Capitolina. They, they said, we're going to remove any trace of, of Jewish, Jewishness and Christian stuff. We're going to make this a, a Roman uh, a celebration of Roman deity. They had a temple to Zeus. They had a temple to uh, this healing god. And they made a, a temple here that would have, you know, tried to distance and overwhelm the historical reality that Jesus was crucified here. And the point being is, from the very beginning, this was regarded as the place where Christ was uh, crucified and buried. In fact, just in the past few years, there's been a renovation of the tomb itself, and not just the church building around, but the tomb itself. And you can see that inside that tomb, which has been carved and cut away so many different times, what's left is is barely anything there. And yet underneath that marble slab where you see those candles, those votive candles placed underneath that slab is a a rock face that does go back centuries. This marble top is, is a newer feature. And yet underneath that is a place where uh, a body would have been laid. Now it says that Joseph put a, where did it say that here? Uh, verse, verse 60 says, he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. There are many examples of a rolling, what's called a rolling stone tomb, really goes back to that second temple period, the first uh, first century uh, early Roman um, kind of existence, not just in this place, you know, the, the rolling stone has been carried away uh, from the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and yet we have other, other evidences of a rolling stone tomb, a round um, a stone that would have been rolled in, the, in to cover that entrance, because tombs... Um, they're not gotten into a lot in terms of you don't, it's not like a pantry, you go in, in and out and in and out, but it is used not just for one person. There are uh, the, the means of burial. We bury a body in the ground and, it, you know, we don't ever touch it again. And yet here in that time period, they would bury it, they would wrap the body with cloths and, and spices and oils to, to kind of cover the, the scent, the odor of decaying flesh and... Once that decay had happened and all you have are bones left, then you'd gather up those bones and either put them into a, a, a depository, kind of maybe a, a little um, hole in the ground, a little little cave in that tomb, and just put those bones together with, you know, aunt so-and-so and grandpa so-and-so and then great-great-great-grandpa. And so you'd have a family tomb. Well... Somebody needs to get in there and do that stuff. And, okay, maybe in the meanwhile, we have somebody else died, but, oh, we're still, you know, Grandpa so-and-so's bodies are, you know, still decaying. We need another place. And so you'd have maybe multiple um, places where you could put different bodies and then hope that that would. So the point being, you need to have access to it. But you don't want everybody to go in there. You don't want to have anybody just kind of wandering into a tomb like that. That's why Jesus, when he talked about you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You whitewash a tomb to make it evident, hey, this is a tomb, don't go in here, but there's, it's closed for a reason, there's dead bodies, you're going to be unclean, and they would do that. Uh, this, this is another example of a rolling stone uh, tomb from that first century period, and here's another one up to, in Galilee, and here, just to show how big those stones can be, I mean, typically, you wouldn't want to do that, it's a big stone, I mean, this guy, what does it say, this guy was uh, it doesn't say in this picture how tall that guy is, but the stone is, is much larger than him. Why would you need a stone that big? Well, for a grand too, you know, whatever rich guy had, whatever wanted a big door. Who knows why, why these things go on? And yet we know that 
this stone was placed to prevent access, both you know somebody leaving the tomb, Jesus, for example, or uh, somebody getting into it. There is another example of a way to seal a tomb, and whereas the rolling, the, the round stone may have been utilized more for the rich and um, heady kind of folks, the more common, easily accessible economic uh, uh, solution would be to have what's what would be referred to as just a plug. You'd have a, a square kind of a thing, and that, that stone would then plug that hole. Who knows which which of the two? I mean, we typically think of that rolling stone, and yet it could be this as well that was used. You have the ceiling of the of the of the tomb as well. The, the guards that were granted to the chief priests and the Pharisees was uh, entrusted with a seal. Now, a seal is not like uh, an animal, right? That barks, 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 or you know, flaps. A seal is is a signet ring, and it was it had a a specific uh, name associated with it. These are different. Um, seals that could be used that represent uh, uh, the owner, the, the one who has the authority to do things. It could be, you know, you seal a, a letter, a scroll with, um, you know, who's it from and what authority is this granted. And you can also seal doors shut, like in this case, or other, other official business kind of things. And so it was sealed maybe with some kind of a, a string or a rope or, or somehow it would have been disturbed. You know, seal it with wax, right? This is a, a firm uh, ring that would have, on, on soft or or molten wax, would have left an impression. Well, it also would have brought together some twine or, or some kind of rope that would indicate if this was open, then the seal is broken and something's happened. So the point being, we want to avoid Jesus' disciples coming by night and taking the body. We'll know if this tomb has been opened, disturbed in any which way. And so the guard is there. So we have this wonderful uh, setup of, okay, I witnessed this, I witnessed that, and we have this the setting of the tomb, we have the the different precautions that they went through to make sure that that uh, Jesus' body stayed there. Let's pick up the narrative in chapter 28 then and see what happens. After the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards quaked from fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold. I have told you. Well, we'll stop right there. Early in that morning, this was this, the day after the, the Sabbath day, so Sunday morning, the first day of the week, the association or assembly of women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, and other gospels, you kind of have to piece this together uh, across the different gospel records, how different groups arrived at various times. That's why you can read about some while it was still dark, others while it was just you know very, very early, the sun just was coming over, or you see different, uh, appearances of Jesus to different groups of women. It's because things are happening. This is a real-time development of, of excitement, and, and, and maybe some of the older women go not so quite as fast as the young women. And so Mary Magdalene ran ahead and did all these wonderful things. But you have these Roman soldiers who are there as well. These aren't just your fly-by-night um, uh, whomever. These are trained Roman soldiers who were granted by Pilate. Not just one. There were several of them. And for this 
this uh, situation to happen that the, the uh, in verse 4 it says the guards quaked from fear of him, of the angel, and they became like dead men. Now, that's, that's striking. You see this wonderful illustration of, uh, of a Roman soldier. I mean, just a manly man, and yet they were absolutely terrified, which is why it just reminds you of one of the first sayings that angels say whenever they appear to somebody is, do not be afraid. I know my appearance is rather startling. I mean, they don't go, they don't go that far. But his, what does it say? His, his appearance was like, like lightning and his clothing is white as snow. So not only do we have human eyewitness testimony of what's going on. And we have, as if God himself is helping us understand, he's not here. Don't you remember what he said? I mean, what are you guys doing here? Don't, I mean, you come looking for the living among, or you know, the, the dead among the living. Christ is here, or not here. He is gone. He's risen, just as he said. So we have this wonderful testimony. This angel is there sitting on this, this tomb. Some uh, of the gospels say that he was sitting on the stone itself, the, the rolling stone. Some say, Actually, another one says that there were two angels sitting at the head and at the feet of where that body lay. This is a place where that tomb, in the tomb, where the body would have been laid. And you can see uh, one on this wall and one on the other side and probably another one on the corresponding or the opposite wall that this is a family tomb. It's been used uh, for for generations. This is not the tomb that Jesus is buried in, of course, but reminds us of it. We have all this wonderful eyewitness testimony that is going on. I haven't drawn out the idea, not just eyewitness testimony, fulfillment, you know, supernatural events and fulfillment of specific prophecies. Jesus died. How many times in Scripture do we read that the Messiah is going to die? And we think, well, what's this Messiah going to die for? Well, he's going to be cut off. Daniel 9 says, Messiah will come and he will be cut off and have nothing. Or in Isaiah 53, so much talks about that. Or even just right at the beginning, Genesis 3 says, God says to Satan, uh, the son of the woman, or the seed of the woman, will uh, bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Snake's kind of getting the, the shorter end of the stick there. Bruising his head means he's going to die. He's going to be vanquished, which we're going to see in Colossians 2.10, that Jesus is head over all ruler, rulers and authorities. And we're going to see how Christ is is conquered, has conquered these things, but did it through his death. Unless we think, oh, that's the end of it. No, he was raised again. He is alive forevermore. Uh, we see how many times in Scripture that his death would be accomplished historically, but also theologically. Uh, by his death, we have the forgiveness of sins. We have the, the truth that Christ's body was going to be buried the same day as his death. Uh, the Scripture says uh, that a body should not hang on a tree all night. You shall bury him on the same day. This is Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. And even the, the hint that we see in the Passover lamb, he says, you shall not keep any of it over until morning. Consume the whole thing. Whatever is not consumed by you, burn it with fire. So that idea of the compactness of the death and the burial. And we see that Jesus was born, or excuse me, was uh, buried that same day. Scripture says that in Isaiah 53, verse 9, it is that he would be assigned with wicked men. As he would die with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. He was with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, also a wealthy man. And uh, we can see that testimony uh, repeated there. We can see the fulfillment of scripture prophecy in the 
just continual opposition of the religious and civic leaders, civil leaders against Jesus. Uh, Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people devise or meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth, Pontius Pilate and others, take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Well, Psalm 2 is what that is from. Or these people who have sharpened their tongues as a serpent, the poison of a viper is under their lips. All the opposition that Jesus endured through his earthly ministry and afterwards and continues to do is just a fulfillment of Scripture and how that is reality. Jesus would be buried three days and spend three days and three nights in the tomb. Now, there's a chronological issue that we could talk about, but if you have questions about it, you can ask me. He was buried on a Friday afternoon. He was raised on a Sunday morning. Is that three days and three nights? Yes. You can ask me about it, how, how that can work t- together. There was no decay of his body. His body was placed in the tomb, but the scripture says as early as Psalm 16, he says, uh, David is the one who's, who's saying this, you will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. You will make known to me the path of life and all these wonderful things that happen, which Paul, excuse me, Peter first quotes at the Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, and Paul quotes it again in Acts 13, this very passage from Psalm 16, saying there's not going to be no decay of the body, no corruption. The, the reality is that Christ is raised to life, and even that resurrection is something fulfillment of prophecy. As early as Abraham, uh, Abraham, you know, 2000 BC, had an expectation that, okay, I, God is asking me to, to sacrifice my only son, Isaac, and I'm going to do it, I guess, because God said the promise is in him, I guess he's going to raise him from the dead. Hebrews 11 verse 19 says, Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he also received him or Isaac back. So Isaac was really resurrected because he was condemned to die at at God's command. Job talks about this, Job 19. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will take his stand on earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet in my flesh or from my flesh, I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold and whom I eyes will see and not another. There's the expectation of resurrection, life after death, not a woo-woo kind of a thing, but the reality, in my flesh I shall see God. And that's what Christ has done. And the resurrection is so much testified to throughout this this uh, historical narrative. Well, jumping uh, forward here, I'm going to skip over the, the drama that the um, religious leaders had and, and all that nefarious stuff. I mean, this is wicked. If you ever think, oh, the truth will come out, well, not unless people continue to lie and blaspheme and present a different turn on it, you know, spin the truth a different. I mean, that's what they did, and they did it full knowing. Oh, the angel, the angel of the Lord, and all that kind of nonsense. And they just they were are wicked. God is able to say. I mean, think of Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who was saved, who was going to you know reap destruction upon the church. Jesus saved him. Let's skip down to verse um, sixteen, and we'll be done here this morning. Verse 16 of, of Matthew 28 says, The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I command you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you remember in our study in Luke's gospel, 
that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea to the south. He was raised in Nazareth. Of course, he went to Egypt in the meanwhile, but settled back in Nazareth in Galilee and was raised there. All of his youth and, and young adulthood were there in Nazareth. But then at some point in his earthly ministry, you know, his three and a half year ministry, he moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. Capernaum is, actually it's pictured here, is on the Sea of Galilee, in the northern shore of Sea of Galilee. And it was different from Nazareth in that Nazareth was kind of secluded. It's off the beaten path. You had to want to go there to get to go there. Whereas Capernaum is right on the international, I mean, like, I-75 kind of thing. Everybody's going by there. Everybody sees your signs, stops in, buys your food. I mean, they, they know where you are. And so he wanted a very public life. I mean, even why he did so much of his ministry in Galilee as opposed to Judea. Judea is up in the hill country, hard to get to. You have to want to go there. Whereas Galilee, people are coming and going all the time. It is more occupied by Gentiles. It's just, uh, it's a more public easily accessible place. And from the beginning of God's dealings with a specific group of people, that is Abraham and his, his progeny, God said, I will bless you. This is Genesis 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. We see that God is dealing with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the descendants, the, the, the physical descendants of them, what we call Israel or, or uh, Jews, and yet he says, in you all the families of the earth. What Jesus just said here, what he evidenced through his earthly ministry, is not just a gospel, not just a message for the Jews, but through the Jews to reach and bless the whole world. And that would be like us. I mean, I'm gonna think a lot of us are Jewish. I don't think we can trace our lineage uh, physically back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet we don't have to. We can have a relationship with God through Jesus, the Messiah. To Jacob, you know, Abraham's grandson, God made the same promise in Genesis 28 that in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Jacob's statements to Judah, uh, to him, the, to the descendant of Judah, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, not just of the Jewish people, but all the peoples will come to Jesus and be under his obedience. What did Jesus just say in Matthew 28, verse 18? All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. He is the chief. He is the one that we have to do deal with. He is the judge. He is the king. He is the savior, all in one. And he says, this is what you ought to do. Go and make disciples, not just of the 12 tribes of Israel. Go to all the nations. And we see this repeated at his ascension in Acts, 1, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You'll be my witnesses, my eyewitnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. You're going to be to tell that story. There is a mountain very close by the Sea of Galilee. If you look closely, you could look across that picture and see Capernaum. But this overlooked the northern uh, scene of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus may have gathered with his disciples, said they went up to a mountain, and they were there, and Jesus spoke to them. It's not where Jesus was ascended. He was ascended at Bethany near Jerusalem. But he gave this command that you go, you tell of what you've seen and heard. And that's what the apostles did. Remember when the, the religious leaders came after them, specifically, they said, don't say anything else in this name of the Jesus of Nazareth. And they said, we can't help but speak about what we have seen and we've heard. We're going to tell the truth. We were there. We saw him. We touched him. Our hands handled the word of life. And we're going to tell because he commanded us. And if you kill us, that's fine. Somebody else will come and car carry this message forward. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came not just for the Jewish people, but all the people of this earth who have the same spiritual condition. We are sinners. 
We need a Savior. We can't do this in ourselves. But Christ is the one who has given us that gospel. Romans 1.16 finally says here, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, also to the Gentile. That is our hope this morning. Christ came to save me. I can be in a right relationship with him as well. Would you trust him? Find your hope in him. Our Father in heaven, again, we thank you for the truth of your word, the reality we have in history, the reality we have in geography, and certainly in your scripture revealed and written, recorded for us. Please help us to rest wholly in your truth, your reality. This is how it is. This is this is real stuff. Please help us to appreciate that, but also to take it personally that Christ came for me. He died in my place, and I can call upon him, and whoever, whoever individual calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the truth we celebrate. That's the hope that we that secures us. That is our assurance of salvation, not based on what we do or don't do, except to trust in the Lord. Please save. Please deliver. Please sanctify us. Please help us to grow. Be more like our Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.